There are several things that you agree to when you enlist in the military. You you agree to go to basic training where you're going to learn how to be a soldier. You agree to follow the orders of the officers appointed over you. You agree to protect and defend the Constitution of the United States against all enemies, foreign and domestic, even to the point of your own death. You also agree to conduct yourself in a certain way. A failure to keep up with your end of the agreement can cause you to be discharged from the military and not always in an honorable kind of way. We make similar agreements when we come to Christ for salvation. When we come and we repent of our sins and we call on Jesus to save us, we agree to become disciples of Jesus so that we can learn how to live for Him and so that we would live for Him. We agree, we agree to follow the orders of Scripture. That the, the Bible is the very words of God and we will do as the Lord has said. We agree to earnestly contend for the faith once delivered to the saints. We agree that we will stand for the truth and we will not waffle and we will not compromise no matter how unpopular that may be. And we also agree to conduct ourselves in a certain way. To live and to act in a certain way. A way that the Apostle Paul called worthy. We are to walk Worthy in our lives. What does a worthy walk look like in our conduct and in our lives? That's what we're going to talk about today. Open your Bible to Ephesians 4. You look at the first six verses. When you find that, I'm going to ask you to stand to honor the reading of God's Word. Ephesians 4, the Apostle Paul writes, I therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you that you walk worthy of the vocation wherewith you are called, with all lowliness and meekness, with long suffering, forbearing one another in love, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, even as you are called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is above all and through all. And in you all. The title of the message this morning is Walk Worthy. Let's pray. Our Father, we love you today. You are great and awesome. You are worthy of our praise and worthy of our devotion. Father, today as we look at what it is to walk worthy of our calling, help us to take this concept and this idea seriously. Lord, we live in a culture that does not take serious things Serious. We live in a culture that often takes flippant things serious, but we are very, very unserious, very insincere regarding things like we're going to talk about this morning. Father, may that not be true of us. We need your Holy Spirit to come to focus our hearts and our minds so that we can hear what you have for us today. For truly, God, that's what we need. I mean, just come and hear me is not worth the time that we would spend to do it. But Lord, if we would come and hear you and hear your word and let your spirit take the word and make it living and active in our life, that is, that is invaluable, God. So today, give us ears to hear 
Give us hearts to receive. And let your word sink down deep into our life and produce noticeable fruit, evidence that we have been born again, evidence that your word is the authority in our lives, evidence that Jesus is Lord over our lives. Fill me today with your Holy Spirit. Give me clarity of thought and clarity of speech and guide me that I would say what you once said, nothing more, nothing less. Have your way in all of our lives, we ask in the wonderful name of Christ our Savior. Amen. You may be seated. Now when we get to Ephesians 4, Paul pushes into the practical application of Ephesians. Right, Ephesians 1-3 through 3 has a, a doctrinal focus. That's where he's talking about our sin, God's sovereignty, God's salvation that comes to us. Then Ephesians 4-6 through 6 is the practical application of that theological foundation that he has already laid. This is very common in Paul's letters. And he lays out theology first, and then how that theology should impact our lives after this. Now, the important or the, the, the order of theology first, application second, is very important. And it's often underestimated, and it's often overlooked. Because what happens is, when we get the order of this wrong, it leads to serious theological error. Like if we just focus on the practical applications, go and do, without first laying a foundation of the theology of what God has done, salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, we end up with a, a sort of a, a moralistic deism in our teaching. Like, and moralistic deism teaching it would say something like, there is a God, so be good. God is watching, so do better. God is there, so try hard. Right? You are just out to, you're going to do it. You're going to knuckle it under. You're going to do it. God's there. God sees. God will judge you. But the why, why, why do we do that? It's missing. And it's moralistic deism and it is very wrong. And it leads to self-righteousness. It leads to legalism. It leads to all kinds of dangerous error. Because it is not the message of Scripture and it is not the Gospel. And if we focus on salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, and, and never really talk about the practical application, what, what, what it means that we have believed on Jesus, then what we do is we end up with some sort of a easy believism where salvation is a, a matter of a prayer that we prayed at some point in the past, but it has no real impact on how we live our lives on a day-to-day basis. You end up with people who, who think they can live however they want to live and do whatever they want to do. Take no thought to Jesus, to His Word or to His will and still think they're good to go because, hey, I prayed a prayer when I was eight years old. Neither of those is the Gospel. Neither of those is the message of Scripture. Rather, the message of Scripture. Salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And the salvation that comes through faith in Christ, it has all sorts of practical implications for our day-to-day lives. Right? We see it in so many places, but just look at this verse. For the love of Christ constraineth us, because we judge that if one died for all, then all were dead. So one died for all. That's the, that's the gospel, right? Jesus died for us. And that He died for all, that they which live... Those are those who are saved. 
should not henceforth live unto themselves, but unto Him which died for them and rose again. Jesus died for all. That's the Gospel. And now that you've received Jesus, you must live for Him. That's the practical application. It's not one or the other. It's not believe and it's not go and do. It is believe and then because you believe, go and do. That is a a necessity. Everything we're going to talk about in the last half of Ephesians is based on what we talked about in the first half. Since God is rich in mercy... For His great love wherewith He has loved us, even when we were dead in sin, He has made us alive in Christ. We are now to live differently. We live differently because of what Jesus has done in us and through us and for us. And our takeaway today, our key point, is that those who receive Jesus must live worthy of Jesus. Those who receive Jesus must live worthy of Jesus. Nothing that we're going to talk about in the coming weeks is meant to be seen as optional. Nothing that we're going to talk about in the coming weeks is meant to be seen as next level stuff. Right? It's not, well, I'm saved, and then when I'm really a mature Christian, I'll begin to to walk worthy. I'll begin to do all of these other things. No, that's not the picture. The picture is... You have received Christ. You have received the mercy of God. You have been made alive by Him. Therefore, you live this way from the very get-go. I mean, the moment, if we were to have an altar call and you walked at the altar, you knelt here, you prayed a prayer, you received Christ. When you stood up, everything in chapters 4 through 6 is yours to live out and yours to do in life. We are all meant to live by everything we're going to talk about in the coming weeks. We are meant to live differently because of what Christ has done in us and through us and for us. So what does it look like to, to walk worthy, as Paul describes in Ephesians 4.1? First, you have to live what you believe. Paul says, I therefore the prisoner of the Lord beseech you that you walk worthy of the vocation Wherewith you are called. Now, it's interesting. We are told to walk worthy of our calling. Now, there's a, just a, it should be a, an obvious thing, but it was something that came to me as I was studying. Is that a part of what it means that we're told to walk worthy is that there is a way that we can walk or we can live that is not worthy. Let me think about that for a second. Have you ever thought about that? That, that not every way that we live Not every way that we act, not every word that we speak, not every action we take, not every reaction we take, not every value we have or every priority of our life is worthy of our calling in Christ. It is possible to say and do and value and prioritize and react in ways that are not worthy. Of the Christ who has saved us. And we're meant to realize that. We're we're meant to think about that. Because everything. Everything in our life. Is meant to be done in a way that is worthy. Of the one who has died on the cross for our sins. And rose again for our justification. We are meant to live, to breathe, to 
act in a way that is worthy of our Lord. So what does that mean? Well, interesting. The word worthy, it pictures scales being in balance. Right? So they're, they're in balance. And in the context here, it means that we don't say a lot and do very little. It means that there is a, a balance between here's what I say and here's what I do. Those two things are in balance. That because I say I believe in Jesus, I live like I believe in Jesus. That I live what I believe in my day-to-day life. Do I believe that Jesus died for my sin? Then I should walk worthy by not living in sin that sent Jesus to the cross. Do I believe I was chosen by God for salvation? Then I should walk worthy by not living as a spiritual orphan, feeling that God doesn't care for me. Do I believe that if it were not for God's mercy and grace, I'd still be following the course of this world, living as a child of disobedience and a child of wrath? Then I should walk worthy and not look down on those who have yet to receive this grace. And I should not treat them as less than because I know there that by the grace of God go I. Do I believe I am God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus and to good works? Then I need to walk worthy and do those good works that God has prepared for me to do. Do I believe that Christ through His bloody death on the cross has made us into one body, the church? Then I should walk worthy. And not treat people of other nationalities or other ethnicities as less than or second class citizens. Now, we could go further into this. But all of this is just, that's just stuff we've looked at in Ephesians. The, the, the first three chapters. That's stuff that comes straight from our previous studies. The idea is, if I believe the Bible is real, right, and true then my actions, my attitudes, my priorities, my reactions, my values, my speech, my morals, my thoughts, my stewardship should reflect this. When they do not, we are not walking worthy of our calling in Christ. Our walk is to match our talk. And it's to do that in every area of life. It's not you you come to church and you walk worthy here. You should. But it's not just here. When you go home and it's you and your husband, your wife, your children, you should live what you believe right there at home. When you go on vacation and there is no one who knows you and there is no one who will ever be able to tell anyone who knows you what you may have done or what you may have said or how you may have acted, you must live what you believe there if you're going to walk worthy. When you go to school and you're around other kids your age who are whatever they're doing, you are meant to live in a way that is consistent with your professed faith in Jesus. You are meant to walk worthy no matter how they live or how they act. When you go to work, And the people at work do or do not act the way Christians should act or do not live for Jesus. You are still to live what you believe and walk worthy of the name of the one who has called you. To be careful of the fact that you do not bring shame and reproach 
on Him through your actions and your attitudes and your words. When you go to your hobbies, whatever your hobbies may be, no matter where they are or who else is a part of it, you are to walk worthy, to live what you believe. There is never a time and there is never a place where you are not a disciple of Jesus. There is never a time and there is never a place if you have repented of your sins and believed in Jesus Christ that you are not saved. Therefore, everywhere you go, everything you do, you strive to walk worthy. You live what you believe. If you have received Jesus, you are meant to walk worthy of Jesus. And that absolutely requires you to live what you believe. Secondly, you have to cultivate Christ-like character. In verse 2, Paul gives us some very specific ways that we can walk worthy of our calling. Now, I've always thought it was interesting that, that what Paul chose, with all lowliness and meekness and long-suffering, forbearing one another in love. I mean, because you might think that he would choose holiness, or he might choose evangelism, or, or marriage, or stewardship, or time management, or or, or any number of other issues, but he, he doesn't choose any of those. It, instead, he focuses on character that is exemplified by Jesus. Think about the passage I read at the beginning of service, Philippians chapter 2. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. Right? Jesus in His life, He, he exemplified a, a lowly attitude by taking the place of a servant. He exemplified meekness and gentleness. By not just lording over people, but by being a servant to others. Jesus was long-suffering. He didn't just fly off the handle when people irritated Him. Jesus, He put up with people. He forbear with one another. That's what we're supposed to do. I mean, the ultimate goal of the Christian life isn't necessarily to get to heaven. It's to be like Jesus. If we want to be like Jesus and walk worthy of our calling, we have to cultivate Christ-like character. And I use cultivate intentionally because I don't think... Now, maybe you're different. Maybe I shouldn't project my, my flaws and my weaknesses onto you. But I know for me, lowliness, meekness, long-suffering, and forbearing, those aren't natural character traits in my life. Those are not a part of my natural, earthly DNA. Now, maybe they are in yours, so I won't project onto you that they're, that they're not. But I'm going to suggest that possibly you should consider the chance that they're not. And that means we have to cultivate them. We have to work at them. We have to do what we can to build these into our lives. And so, in order to cultivate them, we have to know what they are. So let me just kind of walk through what each one means. Lowliness is, it is humility, essentially, is what lowliness means. Now, there are two characteristics about humility. The first characteristic is honesty. Honesty about who we are who we are, and what we're like. Now, this is important because humility does not require us to put ourselves down. Humility does not require us to say things about ourselves that are untrue. Humility is not a spiritualized version of low self-esteem. Rather, humility is self-awareness. Uh, from a brutally honest self-evaluation. In this brutally honest self-evaluation, we see ourselves as we truly are. We see our strengths. 
Right? We, we are a, a humble person. They can say, I'm good at this. This is something that God has blessed me. This is a gift that God has given me. Right? If God has given me a gift to do something, and then I'm like, oh, I'm not very good at that. I'm terrible. That's not humility. That's not honesty. That's lying. Right? So humility isn't saying, no, I'm not good at anything. I'm just a horrible, I just barely scraping by. That's not humility. A humble person can say, I am good at this. And, and I have conquered sin in this area. A humble person can do that. But a humble person will also say, I'm terrible at this. I mean, I cannot, for the life of me, I cannot do that. That is just something, I, I stink at this. And a humble person will say, and I, I struggle with my sinful nature. And the reality is, I, I fail sometimes. A humble person can look at themselves in the mirror and be brutally honest about everything that's true. The good and the bad. Humility requires honesty. Humility also requires self-surrender. Humble people do not have to be first in everything. Humble people do not have to have everything go their way. Humble people do not seek or do not seek praise or recognition for the things that they do. Now that doesn't mean that they shun it necessarily. But who knows that there is a difference between you do something Someone sees it and says, hey, that was awesome. I appreciate that. And you doing something and going, hey, did you see what I did? Isn't that awesome? Don't you appreciate what I just did? Right? One of those is humble. One of those is not. Humility, a humble person, surrenders. And if nobody sees it, the humble person knows that God saw it. And God will give them whatever praise or glory that they deserve. They do not seek the praise or the glory of man. Humble people are able to put others ahead of themselves. Not humble people, as Paul said in Philippians, they care not only for their own things, but also for the things of others. They esteem others as better than themselves. And, and humble people don't threaten to take their toys and go home if they don't get their way. But a humble person can be in a group of people, have a very strong conviction about the way something ought to go, and if it doesn't go that way, they're not going to storm out. They're not going to leave. They're not going to go out in the community and badmouth everybody that disagreed with them. The humble person will say, I don't necessarily know everything. It's entirely possible I was wrong. Lowliness. Humility. If we want to walk worthy, if we want to cultivate Christ-like character, we have to be humble. Then secondly is, is meekness or gentleness. And it refers to how we treat others. Particularly those that we disagree with or those that we are trying to reach with the gospel or those that we are trying to help. Now when we talk about disagreeing and, and like trying to reach someone... Disagree, it does not have to mean someone whose worldview is the polar opposite of ours. Right? It can mean that. But it's not limited to that. Because think about it. Husbands, do you ever disagree with your wives? I wouldn't raise your hand. Do you ever disagree with your wife? Wives, do you ever disagree with your husbands? 
Children, do you ever disagree with decisions your parents make regarding your life? You don't have to nod your head. Parents, do you ever disagree with with things that your children do? Do you ever disagree with your co-workers? Do you ever disagree with your boss? Do you ever disagree with your neighbors? Do you ever disagree with your brother in Christ or your sister in Christ? Now, chances are the answer to every one of those questions is yes. Yes. And in those disagreements, we are to be gentle in how we handle it. Gentle and how we deal with it. But it is not just those people who are close to us. It is also those whose worldview is a polar opposite of ours. We believe in Jesus. Someone is an atheist. Our goal is to reach them with Christ. We're not content to leave them in their atheism. We're, gonna, we're, we're not just trying to get by and let the world go on. We're trying to reach the world for Jesus. How we go about reaching them, gentleness is meant to be a part of the way that we do it. Our, our, and this is key. Our being gentle is not conditioned upon their being gentle. Right? Because very often, other people are not going to be gentle in their interactions with us. But that does not free us to act the way that they act. Our being gentle is conditioned Upon the fact that we were dead in sins. And God in His great love wherewith He has loved us. Showed us mercy and made us alive in Christ. Because Jesus shed His blood for me. I am expected to be gentle with other people. Regardless of whether they're gentle or not. But but you didn't see how they were acting. What about Jesus? Were people gentle with Jesus towards the end of his life? Could he have been ungentle with them and, and stopped the whole process? He, I mean, he could have called for how many legions of angels to come and defend him. That would have wiped out the city. He could have had everybody, he could have just blinked them all out of existence. But he was gentle with them. So how, how far are we to be gentle? Well, Peter tells us to, to emulate Jesus up to the point of death. So when do I get to be ungentle in how I treat others and how I react to others? Apparently never. We're to be gentle in our dealing with them. But, but we keep in mind with this that gentleness isn't weakness. Right? It's not being fearful or wishy-washy about the truth. But if someone asks you, are you saying that if I don't believe in Jesus, I'm going to go to hell? Or are you saying that this socially acceptable action is a sin and it's always a sin? It is not meekness to say something like, well, I don't know. I mean, I just stuff like that is really up to God. I mean, I don't, that's above my pay grade. That's not meekness. That's not gentleness. That's, that's cowardice. That's compromise. Meekness isn't not answering the truth. Meekness is in the way. That we answer the truth. Meekness says that that is exactly what the Bible says. Let me show you where it says that. That's meekness. That's gentleness. Now humility and gentleness, they go together. In fact, humility or meekness cannot exist without humility. Because without humility, we will be filled with pride. And we will respond Harshly rather than gently 
to disagreements. Because why do we respond harshly to disagreements? It's because they've insulted us, haven't they? Who do they think they are talking to me like that? I'll show them. I'm not a pushover. I'm not a coward. I will show them. That's pride. That, that's pride. When they do something to us and we feel the need to respond in kind, it is, it is pride. Always. Humility will conquer that. Without humility, we will be fearful and we will respond with cowardice or compromise so that we don't have to have an awkward or an uncomfortable conversation. Again, if someone asks you, Jesus is the only way, if hell is real, if certain things are sins, and you know what the Bible says about it, and you answer anything, but that's what the Bible says, that's not humility, ever, ever. It is always cowardice. It is always compromise. And humility will conquer that fear, that weakness, and let us give the right answer even in difficult circumstances. And with humility, we recognize that we've been wrong about things at different times. Have you ever been wrong before? Have you been wrong about the Bible? Have you been wrong about politics, a politician? Have you ever been wrong about how to live, how to act, about a financial decision? Have you ever been wrong about anything? Then the reality is that ability that, that you've been wrong should cause you to treat people who are wrong with humility because you've done the same thing they're doing. You've been just as wrong as they are. And with humility, we, we recognize that we struggle with our sinful nature and at times we give in to it. And so it, it sort of kills pride and self-righteousness. And therefore, harshness has no real place in our interaction with, with people we might deem as sinners. Because again, we know that's who I would be. That's how I would be if it was not for Jesus. Then there's long-suffering. Long-suffering, it pictures having a long fuse before you explode. It's the opposite of being short-tempered. Right? When you're long-suffering, every little thing doesn't blow up, cause you to blow up in a rage fit. Long-suffering carries with it the idea of suffering long, of, of not giving up. So you do this with relationships. You do this in your devotion to Jesus. You do this in your commitment to the church. You do this in your use of spiritual gifts. You do this in seeking to reach someone for Jesus. You do this in praying. You do this in, in pretty much everything. Because how many knows all of those things are hard? To, your relationship. I mean, was this the first year of your marriage? Was that like everything the rom-com said it was? Or were, were there shocking things? Difficult things you had to deal with. Have there been difficult things along the way? You have to, to suffer long with one another at times. Devotion to Jesus. It's not easy to daily take up our cross and follow Him. It's not easy to daily deny ourselves. It's not easy to daily be meek with a, with a harsh, angry world. Commitment to church. How many of you have 43 other things you could be doing right now at this time going on? Probably all of you. Being committed to church, to the church of Christ, it takes the ability to suffer long and to keep on. Using your spiritual gifts. 
Sometimes you just have to experiment to even find out what your gifts are. You do something and it's like, oh, that was terrible. Nope, that's not my gift. And then you do it and it's like, well, apparently that was better, but well, this is hard. Seeking to reach someone for Jesus. Very few people come to Christ the very first time they hear the gospel. Most people have to hear it time and time again. Jesus told us to pray without ceasing. That we are to, to pray and not faint. Everything in life pretty much requires us to suffer long. Very little in life is easy and happens quickly. So we have to be long-suffering. And, and then we have to bear with one another. And the idea with bear with one another is that we put up with one another. That sounds odd that you have to put up with each other, but that's just the reality. Because no one's perfect. And there are ways in which people will get on our nerves. And when someone gets on our nerves, our, our natural tendency, probably my natural tendency, maybe I shouldn't throw it onto you, is to avoid them at all costs or just let them have it. How could you be blah, 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 blah. And neither of those is the right response. Rather, we are to bear with them. Why are we to bear with them? Because they have to bear with you. They have to bear with me. Because when we say no one is perfect, guess who's included? You and me. I mean, if I were to tell you, think in your mind of the most annoying human on the planet. Probably all of us have someone who would immediately spring to mind. But here's the hard, shocking reality. More than likely, you and I, we spring to someone else's mind. There is someone out there right now. That when they think of you or when they think of me, it's like nails going down a chalkboard. That's how they feel with us. Don't you want them to bear with you? And you ought to do unto others. You should have them to do unto you. You bear with them. Now we, we bear with them because we love them. Bear with one another in love. Love covers a multitude of sins, the Bible says. When we love someone, we can put up with their quirks and their imperfections and their idiosyncrasies. Again, go back to just your, your marriage. Husbands, does your wife ever get on your nerves? Does your wives, do your husbands ever get on your nerves? Parents, do your kids ever get on your nerves? Kids, do your parents ever get on your nerves? Don't answer. Do your co-workers ever get on your nerves? Do your friends ever get on your nerves? Again, the answer is almost certainly yes. And since it's yes, then how come we don't just divorce our spouses? How come we don't all take our kids to Kansas and drop them off at the fire station and, and dissolve our parental rights? How come the kids don't just run away and never come back? How come you don't just quit your job? How come you don't just hate everybody around you? How come you just stop, they don't stop being friends with people? Because you love them. And because you love them, that's how they are. You, you put up with them. You deal with them. That's how we're to be. That, that is the attitude we're to have all the time. Everywhere we go. Bear with one another in love. Particularly in, in the context of in church. We're to do this in the church. Here's the reality. If you leave a church, every time somebody gets on your nerves, 
that guarantees you will be a church hopper who is never ever a long time partner or long time in, in, in serving any church anywhere. And be sure of this. Church hopping does not please Jesus. We are meant to, to find a church, to be involved in the church, and to be committed to the church. That's what we see in Scripture. We must bear with one another in love. Now, while love is specifically connected to bearing with one another, it would not be inappropriate to talk about everything else, use it in the context of everything else we've already seen. Take some time and read 1 Corinthians 13 verses 4 through 7 and look at what love does. Love absolutely is lowly in its interactions with people. It is absolutely gentle. It is absolutely long-suffering. It absolutely forbears. If we get love right, we will pretty much get everything else right. If we have received Jesus, we are meant to walk worthy of Jesus. And that absolutely requires us to cultivate a Christ-like character in our lives. And then finally, work for unity. Something you find when you read the New Testament is that unity within a church is a really big deal. Unity is a topic. It's either mentioned or it's a theme emphasized in nearly every New Testament book. I'm not sure it's possible to overstress the importance of unity in a local church. As a general rule, a unified church is a strong church. As a general rule, a unified church is a vibrant church. As a general rule, a unified church is a spirit-filled church. As a general rule, a unified church is a Christ-honoring church. But at the same time, in a gen- as a general rule, a divided church, it is a dying church. Because most people have enough stress and conflict in their lives without bringing it here. As a general rule, a divided church is a spiritually weak church. They, they reach nobody because, again, who wants to be a part of that? As a general rule, a divided church is a spirit-quenching and a spirit-grieving church because the spirit works to build unity. In a divided church, it is a Christ-dishonoring church. Very little harms the name of Jesus more than churches who fuss and fight over stupid issues. Now, one of the reasons, one of the many reasons that I love our church is that we are a united church. From the founding of our church till now, our church has gone through many difficult issues that would have split a lot of other churches. This kind of unity in the church, that's the way it's supposed to be. But that kind of unity also requires us to work to maintain it. Because unity is a fragile thing. And it can be easily broken. And so we have to work to maintain it. So look at what Paul says in verse 3. Endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Endeavor to keep the unity of the Spirit. Endeavor carries with the idea of working hard to achieve something. Other translations may say something like, make every effort. And it seems to imply that unity is not automatic. Or that unity doesn't stay without effort. Unity is something you have to work for and then work to maintain. And it is the unity of the Spirit. Right? So Paul is letting us know that the only way we can ever have real unity is when we are Spirit-filled and Spirit-led. Only the Holy Spirit can cause us to have the kind of unity that Christ wants in His church. It's not a forced unity, like you might find in a secular organization. 
It's the unity that we all have because we are all Spirit-filled, we're all Spirit-led, and we're all coming together for one common cause, to advance the Gospel and promote, or promote the Gospel and advance the Kingdom of God. Now, does, does this unity, does it mean that there will never be disagreements? No, of course not. There are going to be disagreements. You can't have ten people together and not have disagreements. So you definitely can't have as many people as you have in a church together and there not be disagreements. But unity means this. Unity means we may have a business meeting and it may get hot at times and we have our say. But when the decision is made, the decision's made. I didn't get my way. That's okay. Still my brothers and sisters in Christ, I love you. You didn't get your way. It's okay. We're still your brothers and sisters in Christ. You still love us. Our, our love for one another, our love for the church, it overcomes the fact that we didn't get our way. And, and again, our church has done this repeatedly time and time again. And that's the way it's supposed to be. But we always have to work to maintain it. Now, Paul gives us reasons why we're to maintain this kind of unity. He says in verse 4, there is one body and one spirit as you are called in one hope of your calling. Right? There should be unity in a local church and among the church in general because there's only one body, the body of Christ, the church. Regardless of what can divide us, whether it would be ethnicity or nationality or social or economic status, family backgrounds or gender, disciples of Jesus belong to one body through one Holy Spirit. Scripture frequently compares the church to a body. And it always says something like, even though there are many members, there is still only one body. And so we all fit, we all have a place, regardless of ethnicity, nationality, social, economic status, family background, gender, or, or even denominational background. Right? The things that we have in common that are spoken of in this verse are greater than the things that we don't have in common. They are more important. They are more significant. We are made part of one body. We, do, we are baptized in one spirit. We have one glorious hope for the future in Christ. Therefore, we can work together despite our other differences. We, in verse 5, he says that we have one Lord, one faith, and one baptism. One Lord is Jesus, who is Lord over all. If the same blood from the same risen Savior has bought us all, then we can put aside ethnic differences. We can put aside national differences. We can put aside social or economic differences, family background differences, gender differences, or denominational differences. Right? We can put all of those things aside in order to have unity, because surely, surely the blood of Jesus that bought is greater than that. We have one faith. One faith would refer to the fundamental doctrines of the Christian faith. Right? When the fundamental doctrines are twisted or ignored, there, there will and there should be division. There has to be a foundation that unity is built on. And that unity, that foundation, it is sound doctrine. Right? Because I'll be honest with you. Well, I believe in, in being unified just as a church and with the church in large, the other churches in Gaiman. I have no interest and yoking up with some group that wants to lay aside fundamental doctrines of the Christian faith or think they are not important or believe that Jesus may not be the only path to heaven or that Jesus didn't actually rise from the dead or the Bible is not the Word of God. We, we, that is not the kind of unity that Scripture calls for. 
Scripture calls for us to be united in the faith. We are to earnestly contend for the faith once given to the saints. And so what we have to do with unity with the one faith is we have to guard against going in ditches. right? Because every road has two ditches. You never want to be in the ditch. You always want to be on the road. One ditch would be like free will Baptists are the only people going to heaven are the only ones we can trust. And if they're not a free will Baptist, you better look at them with a skeptical eye and wonder whether or not they truly believe in Jesus and they love Him. That is wrong. We ought not have that mindset. But the other view is that doctrine is unimportant. Right? That, that it doesn't matter what other people believe as long as we're all spiritual, as long as we all have faith. There are places right now where, where churches are, are yoking up with, with Muslims and Mormons and Buddhists to come together to celebrate their diversity. That, that is horrible. That should not happen. We won't be doing anything like that. I, I will not be a part of something along those lines. We have no foundation to have unity with those people. There has to be a fundamental sound doctrines that we have to have. But where those sound doctrines are affirmed, we can have unity. Whether they're Nazarenes or Free Will Baptists, whether they're Southern Baptists or Free Will Baptists, whether they're Independent Baptists or Free Will Baptists, whether they're Pentecostals or Free Will Baptists. We can absolutely be, be, have unity and work together with those who believe the same things we do but differ in secondary issues. Then in verse 6, it says that we have one God and Father of all who is above all and through all and in you all. Now, contrary to the culture of Paul's day, and really our day as well, is that there are not many gods. There is only one God. Since there is only one God, He alone is worthy of our worship, our devotion, and praise. Our one God is the Father of us all. Because through Him we have been born again. We have been adopted into His family. And again, that's a, that's a, that's a picture, right? That's why we say we're brothers and sisters in Christ. We have been adopted into the family. You have disagreements with your brother and your sisters? You still brothers and sisters then? Yeah. We have disagreements with the Nazarenes and the Southern Baptists and the Pentecostals over issues? Sure. They still are brothers and sisters though? Absolutely. Absolutely. Since we have all been born again through one faith, through one baptism, and we have one Father. We can have unity. And that's true with the, the church at large and with here within the church here. We do have different family, earthly family backgrounds, but we have one spiritual family background. One Father who is over us all. We're meant to have unity. In the longest recorded prayer of Jesus, He says this, They may be one, as Thou, Father, art in Me, and I in Thee. They may also be one in us. The world may believe that Thou hast sent Me. The glory which Thou gavest me, I give to them, that they may be one, even as we are one. I and them, Thou and me, that they may be made perfect in one. The world may know Thou hast sent me, and hast loved them, as Thou hast loved me. Notice the theme? They may be one. What's the purpose of our being one? The world would know that Thou hast sent me. What does it say to a lost world when within a local church we say, Jesus is the greatest thing ever? And then we go out there and we run down other people who also say that Jesus is the greatest thing ever. What does it say to the world at large when they watch and they see a church who claims to be the same faith, even the same denomination, and yet they hate each other and they fuss and they fight 
and they argue all the time. What does it say when two churches who both worship the same Jesus and are part of the same family can't have fellowship with one another because they're not from our tribe? What what does that tell the watching world? Nothing good. If we want the world to know that Jesus was sent by the Father, there must be unity in here. And if we want the world to know that Jesus was sent by the Father, we must be willing to have unity with other believers who are not free will Baptist. That's because when we can put aside all of our differences and we can say that what unites us in Christ is greater than what divides us in these other things, the world says that's that's interesting. That's interesting. To live any other way, to live without unity... It is not worthy of Jesus. So let me ask you today, in closing, do you walk worthy of the Christ who has called you and has saved you? Do you live what you believe? Do you profess this and live that? If you don't, you do not live a life worthy of the Christ who has called you. That's just the reality of it. You've got to repent of that. You've got to take that seriously. You can't just say, that's just how I am. The world is different. You have to say, I'm wrong. I repent of that. And then do what you need to do to bring your life into conformity to Scripture, to live what you believe. Are you cultivating a Christ-like character? Again, if you're not, you're wrong. You, you can't say, well, that's just how I am. Just how I am doesn't matter. We are not called to be how we are. We are called to be different because we have been made new in Christ. So my natural inclination is not an excuse to, to not be lowly or gentle. Or to bear with one another. Or to be long-suffering. My natural inclination cannot even come into factor in how I act. I have to say I'm supposed to act like Jesus. I have been changed to be like Jesus. The Spirit of Jesus lives within me to make me live like Jesus. And if I'm not cultivating and living out Christ-like character, I'm wrong. No matter how my parents raise me. No matter what I think. No matter what I feel. And I have to repent of that. Now, are you working for unity? Do you work to maintain the unity of the faith, the unity within the church? If you don't, we don't have time, we're out of time, but you should read Proverbs. The Bible says about those who sow strife and disrupt the unity of the brethren. God says things like, I hate them. I mean, that's pretty harsh. Paul says things like, mark a divisive man and put him out of the church. Pretty strong. Our culture takes it differently, but, but God, God has a strong view of it. If you're a divisive person, you've got to repent of that. You've got to turn from it. And this is how we're to live because we believe in Jesus. If you are a believer in Jesus Christ, this is what you're meant to do. And if you do not do it, you are. You're wrong. I don't know other way to say it. You're wrong and it'll never be right. It'll never be okay not to live this way. So in this time, we're going to take a time.